Good evening. Here we go. We are thankful each one is here with us this evening. Our lesson is going to begin, not really focus around, but begin and focus around the problem that we do find in Genesis chapter 25, looking at the dangers and the examples we find in the Bible of those who have been has shown themselves to be what I call spiritual sellouts. Sellouts are those who will cash in and to to gain wealth or to gain popularity, and in doing so will sacrifice uh, many things. And so tonight, that's what we'll be looking at. I want to show uh, the error found in those who give in and depart from the faith and those who also have deliberately hindered others and and while doing so gained uh, many physical uh, physical uh, financial gains by doing so. We know that people change their minds all the time, but what about when we change our mind about following God? You know, we look in Genesis chapter 25, we find what happens when someone who goes against uh, someone or, or principle for a selfish reason, someone who goes against another or against a principle for selfish reasons is another way you can really define what a sellout is. And we begin with uh, Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 25. Now, I think in many ways we can say that when we look at these illustrations this evening, that one may be guilty, but we might find also that the other who is involved oftentimes may be guilty of something just as bad or just as wrong. As you look at Genesis chapter 25, we learn first about the character of Esau in Genesis 25 and verse 27. The Bible tells us that the boys grew, a reference to Jacob and Esau there. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a man, was a mild man dwelling in tents. So Esau was a hunter, and we should consider him, as some would say, might consider him an, an avid hunter. Uh, he was one, as we know, the Bible tells us, you continue to read there through 25, or chapter 25, that uh, the Esau's father loved him because he ate of his game, but it was the mother who loved Jacob, that she was, you might say, their favorite, which is a dangerous thing because there are those who might say, uh, we might say that they each had their favorite son or favorite child, which of course is not something you want to have. We think about Esau in Genesis chapter 25, moving forward through verses 29 and 31, when you find that Esau does what we call sell out. And this is what we, when you think about someone who sells out, we probably think of two people in the Bible. We probably think of Judas, and then we might think of Esau. And in verses 29 through 31 of Genesis 25, the Bible says, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Now, I think from the situation in which we find Esau in, that weary is an understatement, that he probably was very, very exhausted, very tired, and was ready to come in and to eat. And maybe sometimes when we've been out working hard, we come home, and the first thing we want to do is find something to eat because we have not eaten for an extended period of time. And so he comes in from the field. He was weary. In verse 30, the Bible says, And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with some red with, with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. Now it's interesting that keep in mind these two men are brothers. They're brothers, right? They're not strangers. This isn't someone coming in and asking someone who they've never met before or someone who they're trying to purchase something from to feed them. No, they are brothers. 
And look what happens in verse 31. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright. Well, let's think about what is a birthright. A birthright represented certain rights for the firstborn child. It wasn't just, when we say sell me your birthright, we're not talking about saying, it's not like as if he just handed him some precious treasure that's been passed down over the years. It wasn't some physical item. The birthright had certain things that came along with it. One of them being the succession to the earthly inheritance of Canaan and to the official authority of the father. The second one would be that the covenant blessing for the father's blessing, which involved a double portion of the father's wealth. And thirdly, as a descendant of Isaac, he had the right of conducting the service of God. And so those are three of the things in which the birthright would include. Now, many times the focus was upon the second one, which was the double portion of the father's wealth. But we find that it is not some trinket that which he gave up. He gave up everything, his entire inheritance, which may make, make us ask the question, how could someone come in and just quickly give it away for a bowl of food? Well, as we're going to look at later, we're going to find that, that this was not the only time something like this has happened in history. We find, if you look at verses 33 and 34, that Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave, gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. A birthright was something that should have been a blessing, something that should have been something that you would hold very dear and grateful for. And everyone got a birthright. As we've already mentioned, the firstborn was the one who would have that. But by despising it, he was casting it off. He viewed it as if it was nothing at all, really making almost a mockery of the blessing which would come from his father. He despised his birthright in this way, as we find there in verse 34. But we also want to realize, as you think about this idea, that we think about this birthright, we think about what's happening here, we have to remember that Jacob treated his brother poorly, to put it mildly. Can you imagine having your brother or sister come in and they're just exhausted and they ask for, a, for, for you to share the meal that you just finished or that you just finished preparing, I should say. And you ask them in return for the keys to their car. Or you ask them for their bank account. We think, well, that sounds crazy. But in all reality, those are the types of things that Esau was giving up. The major blessings wasn't a car for him, but it was no doubt many other blessings that were a part of having that birthright. You look again at verse 30 and 31. Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with the same red stew for I am weary. How should Jacob have responded? He shouldn't have asked for his birthright at all, should he? He should have, being his brother, fed and helped his brother. But instead he responds with, sell me your birthright. Look at 1 John 3 in verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Was it really a big deal for Jacob to share the food that was before him with his brother? Was Jacob going to go without if he gave his brother some food to eat? Well, no. The Bible doesn't make any indication that it was going to be some huge sacrifice upon Jacob. 
which reminds us here of this principle we find here in 1 John 3 and verse 17. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, in Jacob's sense, it was literally his brother. What did he do? The Bible says here, and shuts up his heart from him. Well, some might argue that he didn't do that, but in reality he did because he told him he wanted to have any of that food. He wanted his birthright in exchange, didn't he? Then we have the question there in verse 17. How does the love of God abide in him? Well, in that situation, it most certainly does not. You know, Esau was no doubt very hungry, and he became very angry. You might say even unreasonable. As we go back to Genesis 25 and 30, verse 32, when he says, Look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Was Esau really about to die? No, he was just exhausted. The Bible tells us he was weary. He didn't want to sit there and talk back and forth with Jacob. He just wanted food. Sometimes we call that being hangry. That's when, that's when we become so angry because we're so hungry. And this could be an example of that here with Esau. He didn't care what he was giving up. Notice this. These are some comments from a commentator by the name of, by the name of Kaufman. And he says, how strongly do sensual appetites assert their influence over us? He says the, the Arabs themselves have a story of Abu Gabshin, the governor and guardian of the temple of Mecca, but also a weak and silly man who was checkmated and removed from his post by, by Kosa, an ancestor of Mohammed, who bought, who bought from him the keys of the temple and with it his presidency for a single bottle of wine. He's talking about how men, when they're not in the right frame of mind, they'll do things that are unreasonable. He goes on to talk about here how he says there is something also very unlovely, very unlovely in what Jacob did. Knowing his brother's weakness, coldly calculating how he might take advantage of it, and mercilessly insisting that his brother swear away his birthright are traits that make the heart sick to contemplate. I think he's right. The way he treated his brother was very disturbing. But you know, Jacob and Esau, they're not the only ones who have problems in the area of mistreating others for, for selfish gain. We think about another individual by the name of Delilah. We think about other sellouts in the Bible. This is one that comes to my mind. Because Delilah and Samson is a very interesting story, to put it that way. It's one of my favorites because it's one that the lessons are so many and the problems are, in many ways, so very clear. We go to Judges chapter 16. In Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse 4, looking at verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, Afterward it happened that he loved, it's talking about Samson, he loved a woman in the valley of Zorik, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her, and said to her, Entice him, and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. How many pieces did it take for Judas to betray, to betray Christ? Do you remember? 30. 1,100 pieces of silver here in Judges chapter 16. But it's interesting that you read about how Samson loved Delilah, and what you read about Delilah, her first mention is about how she takes advantage of the situation. We find there in verse 5 that the Bible says, The lords of the Philistines came up to her and to, said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, 
and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, could she have told those individuals, I don't want anything to do with that? After all, this man is in love with me. She could have said that, but she didn't. Look at verses 15 through verse 17. We're going to skip ahead here. The Bible says, And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, put in context. Remember, she has asked Samson over and over again, where is your strength lies? Lie, he doesn't tell her. He tells her, tells her one thing, then she tries it, and then it comes out that that's not actually true. Now, you would think that Samson would say, you know what, I've told her three times, I've given her three ideas about how it could be bound falsely, and she's tried all three of them. Don't you think at some point he would kick her to the curb? Don't you think at some point he might learn his lesson? Hey, this woman doesn't love me like I love her. Look at verse uh, 15. Look what she says here. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You know, we find people today who say these things, individuals, to try to get them to do things which they ought not. Young men and young women sometimes will tell those who they're with, saying, well, if you'll love me, if you really love me, you'd do this. That's a bunch of garbage. It wasn't Delilah's time, it still is today. He says here in verse, verse 15, you have, she says, you have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. Why was he still there? Why was he still putting up with Delilah? He loved her, right? Now, the Bible doesn't give us great detail about whether or not his feelings towards her were, were actual love or lust. But whatever that may have been, he had a strong attachment to her. But it's very clear in Judges 16 that she had no strong attachment for him. Look at verse 17. Excuse me, look at verse 16, rather. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. How could you love a woman who do things like that? Now, we can easily turn this around and say, well, this could also play out the same way with a man doing this to a woman. No doubt that is true as well. But look at verse 17. Then he told her all his heart. She's, she's asked him and tested him three times. Now she's vexed him daily until finally he tells her what the truth is. And he said to her, no razor has ever come upon my head. For I've, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like all other men. You know, eventually, Samson gives in and tells her what he should not have, right? Can you say in some ways that in this moment, Samson sells out for the sake of love and tells Delilah something he shouldn't have? I think so. I think in an attempt to gain her love in return, he told her what the truth was, but it didn't quite work out right, did it? Look at verse 18 and 19. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, <clears throat> she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Think about... We think about people like Delilah. We think about people like Esau. That's what we'll talk about in a moment. We think about people like 
Demas and others who gave up so much and gained many times in return ailment and hardship as a result. You know, Delilah here sells out Samson for money. She, she puts him in harm's way. When you find in verse 19, the Bible says she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him and his strength left him. Now, what's interesting to me, and I've highlighted several things here, and how much things in which she does to him in verse 18 and 19 alone. Who is the first one to torment him? The Bible says it was her. Now, in all reality, she has tormented him prior to this because she's been asking him over and over again, where's your strength lie? And we could say that, well, she was tormenting him there as well. But when it came to doing things that actually would bring about his death and bring about physical harm, the Bible tells us in verse, verse 19 that, that she began to torment him. She was the first one there. And the Bible tells us next, and his strength left him. They shaved off the seven locks of his head. She began to torment him, and his strength left him. We could say a whole lot more about Samson there, but we find here this is an example of Delilah selling out a Nazarite who was a follower of God, right? She sold him out. What about Demas? Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. The Bible says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Grecians for Galatia, and Titus for Dalmatia. We find in verse 10 that there's only one person who is mentioned as having forsaken this present, having loved this present world, having forsaken him, and it's Demas here, right? Now, many say that this was happening at a time when Paul was in prison. And so that would mean that they actually, the demons was actually walking away from Paul and departing from him, not helping him while he was already in prison. You might say it's almost like throwing salt in an open wound, right? Demons, like many today, left the ple- let the pleasures of the world pull him away from God. You know, we cannot have confidence in someone who so easily sells out to the world in Proverbs, Proverbs 25 and verse 19, the Bible reminds us, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. They're not going to help you, are they? They're no benefit to you. And he was that unfaithful man in time of trouble. You can't say Paul wasn't in trouble when he was in prison. What about some examples for us today? We have those today who are what I call itchy people. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, recording their own desires because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They will be turned aside to fables. Those, there are those who can only stomach love, but they cannot stomach truth. You know, I think about how sometimes we can talk about the love of God, we can talk about God's mercy, God's grace, but then when you start talking about the judgment of God and the wrath of God, for some, they don't want to hear that. Some do not want to think of the idea of how a loving God could send someone to hell, but in reality, the Bible tells us that when we forsake God and commit sin and 
rebel against him do we really pronounce sentence upon ourselves. You think about also we look at verse 3. It says, For the time will come when they will not, notice the word here, endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is a reference to sound teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. And so sound teaching, they will not endure it. I always think about how the idea there being they will not put up with it. They will not tolerate it. Instead, we find in verse 4, the Bible says, they would turn aside to fables. A fable, according to Strong's, is an invention, a falsehood, things which are not true. Things which are not true. So they'll be turned aside from sound doctrine. They will go, they will follow their own desires. They will find their own teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth, and they'll go after stories. False teaching. You know, no one gets to heaven putting their faith in a, in a fairy tale. What about those who are entertainment seekers? Those who, live, who leave biblical scriptural worship for an emotion-filled or a concert environment are not seeking that which is true worship. In John 4, verses 21 through 23, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, for we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. For the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers... Why use the phrase, true worshipers? Could it be because there are those who were not true worshipers? Those who were false? Those who were worshiping in vain, as we find back in Matthew? When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Worship the Father in spirit and in truth, with the right attitude and according to His word. Now notice the last part of verse 23. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is looking for those who will worship Him in truth and in sincerity. He's not looking for emotion, emotion field. He's not looking for emotionalism. He's not looking for the concert vibe. He's not looking for the social club. No, he wants us. To, he wants to find those who worship him honestly and truly and scripturally. What about this? What about those who sell out because they choose friendships over truth? I'm convinced, especially over the last year, seeing some things that I've seen, there are those who will tell you they love the Lord and believe the truth and will do what is right. But someone a little too close to them gets involved in something, they're okay with it. You know, we have too many who are willing to sit down and put their arms around someone and tell them they love them and not tell them and warn them that what they're doing is against God, that it's sinful. I'm convinced there are those who, if they're... If they had friends who get, became involved in alcohol, they would continue to spend time with them, continue to encourage them to worship God, but never at the same time use that time to condemn them for what they were doing. You know, we can have all the friends in the world and still miss heaven. Look at Galatians 4, verses 9 through 11. You know, the Apostle Paul here begged those who were starting to turn from the truth to return 
to the one true God in Galatians 4, 9 through 11. He says, but now, after you have known God, we might say today when we're talking to someone, when you know what the truth is, you're turning away from it. He says, rather are known by God, how is it that you now, that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You're going back into what? For them, they're going after false gods, idolatry. They're going back into the world. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He says, I'm afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. He's saying, I'm afraid for you because I've taught you what the truth is. And I'm afraid it's all going to be in vain because you're going back and doing what you used to do. They're going away from the truth. Look at verses 12 through 15 of Galatians chapter 4. He tells them how much he loved them and how much they loved him in the past. Look at verses 12 through 15. He reminds them of where they once were. He says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not entered me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness, bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and give them to me, saying that we used to have this strong bond together. We used to be like this, but now you're going after truth. And what's the next thing he says in verse 16? Have I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. You know, the truth has a way of separating the wheat from the tares, doesn't it? It has a way of separating the true followers of God from the so-called. It has a way of separating true friend, friends who love the Lord and want to do what is right and they'll stick together doing that. Making those hard changes at times in their own lives, they have to do so. Then you have those, your only friends, and you agree with them. Think about this for a moment. Is that really a friend? Where if you don't agree with them, they just started treating you poorly, getting upset with you. It doesn't sound like much of a friend. The Bible doesn't tell us that that's how a friend treats one another. You know, those who had cared much so much for him in the past now, well, he has to ask them this question because he has to ask them, has he become their enemy? Because he tells them what the truth is, how they're going back in the world, and how he says he was afraid for them. And he closes this little section here, or at least we are, with his question, have I become your enemy? How sad it is when we lose those who we are close to, those we love so much, because we tell them what the truth of, the God, of God's word is. You know, Paul in Galatians 4 was not willing to sell out his friends and tell them, it's okay, I still love you, you know, we'll, we'll be all right, you know, keep coming, keep doing what you're doing. It's okay. It's someone else's fault. Right? Sometimes we like to do that. When someone stops coming as they should, we say, well, that preacher just said a little too much that day. Or the elder just said a little too much that day. Or, you know, we shouldn't have talked about that. That wasn't the right time. You know, in all reality, when we're talking to people who are doing not doing what is right, there's never a good time in their mind to talk about it. You know, Felix is a good example of that, wasn't he? He told Paul, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. He never calls for him because it wasn't a convenient time. He didn't want to hear it. Instead, we end that section with Felix leaving Paul in prison as a favor to those who would come after him. 
You know, their feelings in Galatians 4 had changed. Would they have been happier if, he, if Paul had said nothing at all? If Paul just went on doing as he's always done, preaching the truth, and even though they're, they're doing what is wrong, just ignoring it and just going on as if it's not happening? No, they would lose souls. The Lord would lose souls. You know, being blissfully ignorant leads to being lost. The world puts forth the idea that it has everything you want, however the Bible tells us otherwise. The world tells us to calm down sometimes, doesn't it? One popular singer talks about individuals who are calling out homosexuals and lesbians and things like that, and she said, just calm down, just calm down. No, we shouldn't calm down over sin. We should warn people that, look, we don't change. You're never going to see heaven. heaven. Heaven is enough for us to get upset about, isn't it? Hell is enough for us to get upset about and concerned about. It's not a time to calm down. It's a time to think very seriously about things. If you look at 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 3, I believe Chris mentioned this a little bit this morning. First Peter 4, verses 1 through 3, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh with the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. When he walked in, he begins to list all those things, Right? The drinkings, we might say, today we might say the drinking, the drugs, the partying, the fornications, all those wicked things. It's the same kind of stuff Peter's talking about there. He's saying we should be done with all that. We shouldn't, there's never, he's not saying we should sow our wild oats. He's saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing it. So don't go back and start acting like they did. Look what he says in verse two, that, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh that's in this life for the lust of men, but for the will of God there in verse two. I mean, we live for God. We don't live for those earthly, fleshly things, those passing pleasures of sin. So let us not sell out to anything that would separate us from God. We think about how we find around us today temptations to give in, temptations to be quiet, temptations to be as the world would say, to be kind and just don't, you know, tolerate whatever it is. The Bible doesn't tell us that. In fact, we find throughout the scriptures that God doesn't tolerate too much of anything, does he? We shouldn't confuse long-suffering of God with him condoning sinful actions. You know, God was long-suffering in Genesis until, the, until he told Noah to build the ark. He was long-suffering with Sodom and Gomorrah until he told lot that there's gonna be fire raining from from the skies right we find that the lord is long suffering until he decides with his own wise judgment that it's time for these individuals to pay the price for their actions because they're not changing you know we think about what it means to sell out as the christian if we sell out we literally give up everything we may gain friends for a time until we do or say something where 
They're no longer our friend, even though we've given up God. We may gain wealth. That's fleeting, isn't it? We may gain physical pleasures, but those things are temporary. See, when we sell out, we actually gain nothing at all. The Christian and those who, want, who say they want to be a Christian, when they sell out, they lose everything. You're waving goodbye to God. You're waving goodbye to Christ. You're waving goodbye to this word. You're waving goodbye to the church. And you're waving goodbye to heaven. And you welcome something far worse. You welcome a time in your life without God, a time in your life without the church, a time in your life without the word of God, in the time of your life where hell could be a, and or for more specifically torments could become a reality for you at any moment. Where the faithful Christian paradise could become a reality at any moment. You know, certain things we look forward to in life are certain things we don't look forward to in life. So we have to prepare ourselves that so we can make sure that we are looking forward to those things which, which we actually want to enjoy and to have pleasure in. Paradise is one of them. Torments is not. This evening, as you think about these things, you think about those we've talked about, such as Esau and Jacob. In all reality, they sold one another out, didn't they? Esau giving up his birthright. Jacob requesting Esau's, treating him poorly. Delilah and what she did with Samson. Samson's refusal to see what was happening. Demas loving the present world and leaving Paul in prison. And the list goes on, doesn't it? We can talk about Judas. We can talk about Balaam. We can talk about others throughout the, throughout the Bible who give up any chance of following God to gain earthly pleasures. But friends, make no mistake, when we sell out, we won't be gaining anything. So let us think very carefully about what we are choosing to do in this life. Come, because come the day of judgment, all sales are final, aren't they? The Lord will look at our ticket and ask what we have done to gain eternal life, if we have been obedient. And if he sees a sellout, friends, there's only one way in which he will respond to us. So let's make sure that we are not one of those who are selling out to the world and giving in to, and selling out Christ and giving in to the world, because it will be something we will regret for all eternity. This evening, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage you in any way. We'd like to do so. Let's get every sin and sing the song that's been selected.